The existence of God may be argued for, but God is the one who must prove himself. That means different things for different circumstances. In Elijah's case, it was a supernatural fire initiated by God. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the life of Elijah. In today's passage, we learn how God distinguished himself from Baal. Baal had previously shown himself to be silent and inactive, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel showed himself to be living and active. Well, Phil, last time we heard how Baal and his worshipers were exposed as being false. This time we'll see how the Lord, the one and only true God, proves himself to be true. Can you explain for us Elijah's role in this situation? Well, Mark, I think when uh, most people think of the conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, they think of Elijah as a prophet who really proved something. And certainly he's involved in this situation. He's the one that uh, calls the people to choose which God they're going to serve. He's the one who rebuilds the altar of God and prays to God to call down his name. But actually, it's not Elijah that proves anything in this passage. It's God who proves himself. What's the difference between the forms of worship that were embraced by the Baal worshipers and that of Elijah? Well, Mark, really only Elijah's way of worshiping was pleasing to God. If you see the things that the Baal worshipers did, it was very dramatic. I mean, they were slashing themselves and they were shouting to their gods. But Elijah's worship was very simple. He simply offered a simple prayer to God, but he did it in the way that was pleasing to God. He came offering a sacrifice for sin. And you know, really, Mark, when we worship God ourselves, we do the same thing when we worship in Jesus' name. Because when we say, in Jesus' name, as we often do at the end of our prayers, we are basing our worship on the sacrifice that Jesus has offered for our sins. That's the worship that is pleasing to God. Thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 30, and listen to God's Word for us today. It is appropriate for us to begin where we ended last week, in silence. Last week we went up the mountain with Elijah and Ahab and 450 prophets of Baal and all the people of Israel. We went up the mountain for one of the great heavyweight showdowns of all time. Baal against the Lord God of Israel, winner take all. Elijah accused the people who were gathered there of wavering between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Silence. The people were speechless. They did not know what to say because they did not know what they believed. And so Elijah proposed sort of a bullfight on Mount Carmel. Two bulls on two altars. The first bull to erupt into flames wins. You call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. The point was that only the God who can answer prayer is really God. Answered prayer is the proof of deity. 
And that is just where Mr. Bale began to run into his pyrotechnical difficulties. The prophets of Baal were shouting and dancing around Baal's altar, begging for fire. But Mr. Baal is deaf and dumb. He is no God, for there is no God but God. And you can hear the proof of Baal's failure in the silence of verse 29. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Just silence. Now it is God's turn. Now it is God's turn to hear and to answer. And as we pick up our story in verses 30 through 40, it seems that the text falls into four sections. The preparation, verses 30 to 35. The prayer, verses 36 and 37, the proof in verse 38, and then the prostration in verses 39 and 40. Elijah's preparation begins with an invitation, come here to me. Like a father gathering in his children, Elijah invites God's people to come back to God. As the children of Israel crowd around to see what the prophet will do, Elijah gathers up the stones of the broken altar and rebuilds it. That gives us an indication, doesn't it, of Israel's spiritual condition. The altar needed to be rebuilt because it was in ruins. And if the place of worship was in a shambles, it was because the hearts of the people were in a shambles, spiritually speaking. Elijah rebuilt his altar properly. He took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, 12 stones for 12 tribes, thus reminding the people that all Israel belonged to God by covenant promise. Elijah was gathering the tribes of Israel back together at the altar of God. He was calling them back to the faith of their fathers. He was calling them back to biblical faith and biblical practice. He did not rebuild this altar in the name of a false god. He rebuilt it, the scripture says, in the name of the Lord. Elijah rebuilt the Lord's altar for the Lord's people in the Lord's name. And then Elijah prayed. We will examine the content of Elijah's prayer next week. But notice its simplicity. The prophets of Baal have been praying all day, shouting at their God to get out of bed. But Elijah stepped forward and prayed like this, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God of Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. That's it. That's all. After six hours of prayer to Baal, Elijah prayed for less than a minute. You see, the power of his prayer did not depend upon its length or its eloquence or its volume. 
You might have to pray long and loud if your God is hard of hearing. I don't know. My God is not hard of hearing. But Elijah's God is the God who hears and answers. The power of the prayer does not lie in the prayer, but in the God to whom Elijah prayed. Elijah prayed just the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. When you pray, Jesus said, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Elijah's preparations and prayers stand in complete contrast to the worship of the prophets of Baal. And I suppose that if we had been on Mount Carmel, we might have been very impressed with their worship. They were spectacular. I mean, forget religious broadcasting. These guys could have gone on MTV. They worshiped long. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, verse 26. Altogether, six hours of worship. They worshiped loud. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. Mendelssohn's oratorio, based on this text, the Elijah, captures the volume of their worship as the chorus sings, Baal, hear us, with a great rushing cascade of sound. Their worship was vigorous. They danced around the altar they had made. Their worship was costly. Verse 28, they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. This was not a boring worship service. All of the singing and the dancing, all of the slashing and the shouting, it must have been very exciting. How was the service at Carmel, someone might ask. It was awesome. It went on for hours. They had this huge team of worshipers up on the mountain, blood everywhere. 450 prophets of Baal singing, Come on, Baal, light my fire. (laughs) It was very exciting. But God judges by the heart. What seems impressive from the outside is often empty on the inside. Religious frenzy is not necessarily a sign of spiritual life. I want to put it just that way. Religious frenzy is not necessarily a sign of spiritual life. And that was especially true in this case, because the prophets of Baal were not worshiping the living God the way that he wants to be worshiped. God did not command long services. God did not command loud prayers, and God certainly did not demand his worshipers to wound themselves. That was from the devil. There is no masochism in biblical worship. In fact, God expressly forbade his people to pierce their bodies. Leviticus 19, verse 28, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. God's people belong to him in body as well as in soul, and he wants their bodies to be beautiful for worship. We are reminded by the blood 
flowing from the prophets of Baal, that false gods are harsh taskmasters. There is always a price to be paid for worshiping idols. You find this theme over and over again in the Old Testament. False gods abuse their worshipers. These days, people believe that it does not matter who or what you worship as long as you believe in something. But the Bible teaches that it does matter because false gods always abuse their worshipers. If you worship worldly success, you will pay for it with spiritual failure. If you worship comfort, you will pay for it with spiritual unrest. If you worship sex, you will pay for it with broken relationships. If you worship danger, you will pay for it with a broken body. False gods always exact their price. Satan wants a piece of your body as well as your soul. But what we are especially warned by the prophets of Baal about is that to worship God properly is to worship him in spirit and in truth. As Paul told the Corinthians when he was talking about worship, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Elijah worshiped God in the biblical way. He offered a proper sacrifice on a proper altar built with the proper number of stones. He did not whip himself into a frenzy or wound himself. And furthermore, Elijah offered his sacrifice at the proper time of day. Verse 29 indicates that the prophets of Baal worshiped all day until the time of the evening sacrifice. Elijah offered his sacrifice for atonement right at the proper time, at the time of sacrifice, the scripture says in verse 36. Now this is a small detail, but it shows the difference between false worship and true worship. The prophets worshiped any way they pleased, but Elijah worshiped the way God pleased. Elijah worshiped the right God, and he worshiped the right God in just the right way. The principle that governed Elijah's worship is sometimes called the regulative principle. The Westminster Confession of Faith expresses it like this. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Now, Christians sometimes disagree, as you know, about how that principle ought to be applied. But we ought to be able to agree on the principle itself because the principle is right. God is the one who receives our worship. And so he has the right to determine what kind of worship we must offer The New Testament describes corporate worship through prayer, the reading and preaching of the Word of God, baptism, the Lord's Supper, singing, and the giving of offerings. We may be creative in the way that we do those things, but we are not to worship God in ways that he did not intend. Elijah was accepted by God because he worshiped in the way that was acceptable to God. Now, after the preparation and the prayer came the proof. This was the second part of Elijah's two-part strategy for evangelism. When it came to apologetics, to 
defending his faith in the living God. Elijah had a one-two punch. First, the disproof of the false god. Of course, we had that last week when Baal was exposed to be no god. Now, the proof of the true god. The refutation of the false god before the demonstration of the Lord God. In our last study, we noticed that Elijah gave every advantage to his opponents. He gave, we said, the home bull advantage, letting the prophets of Baal choose the first bull and build the first altar. Even Elijah's challenge to make fire gave Baal the advantage, for Baal was supposed to be the god of lightning and thunder. But Elijah really gave himself a handicap after he had finished rebuilding his altar. Verses 33 through 35. Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. This was all part of Elijah's master plan. He was savvy enough to know that whenever God performs a miracle, there are doubters. So he wanted to make it as clear as possible that only God could start this fire. He invited the closest scrutiny of what he was doing. He made sure that everybody could see how soggy his altar was. And perhaps he sent his helpers down to the Kishon River just below the mountain, or perhaps he sent them to the Mediterranean Sea just a little bit further away. But in any case, everyone would have seen the helpers go down the mountain and carry the big jars of water, laboring with them up the mountain, water sloshing over the sides. And then they doused the altar. Everyone saw it, water running all over the pieces of the bowl and all over the wood and the stones, all over the ground, filling those great trenches around the altar. The point was that only God could light this fire. The pyrotechnics needed to light the bull were far beyond Elijah's capabilities. Only God could consume the sacrifice on the altar. And so he did. With God, all things are possible. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. No bull no wood, no stones, no soil, no water. Nothing was left. It was not just a fire or even a bonfire. It was a mighty conflagration. The fire of the Lord God Almighty came down from heaven and consumed everything. That fire was the proof of the godness of the Lord God of Israel. The Lord The God of Elijah is a burning and consuming fire. He is the God who sent fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush, the God who led the children of Israel out with a fiery pillar by night, the God who consumed the burnt offering on Aaron's altar, the God who consumed Nadab and Abihu with flames when they offered unauthorized fire. He is the same God who defeated Baal on Mount Carmel with fire from the mountain. He is the same God who sent fire to accept Elijah's sacrifice for the atonement of Israel's sin. And we are reminded by all of this that God is his own proof. 
Only God can prove his own existence. Elijah helped to disprove Baal, but he did not really prove God at all. God proved himself. I am God. I am God, he declared in the fire upon the altar. And this same thing is true whenever we share the good news about Jesus Christ. We can sometimes disprove the false gods of this world. If you tug at the loose ends of any non-Christian worldview, it will begin to unravel in its own contradictions. But you cannot prove God to the unbeliever. When you speak to people about your faith in Jesus Christ, you can offer many persuasive arguments in your defense. You can talk about the butterflies and the mountains and the stars, about how the whole universe gives abundant evidence of intelligent design. You can talk about the reliability of the Bible, about how the science of archaeology confirms the truth of biblical history. You can talk about the historical evidence for Jesus Christ, about how the four Gospels give independent testimonies to his life and death and resurrection. You can give many convincing and persuasive arguments for the truth of Christianity. But only God can prove himself. Believing in God, not just believing in some vague divine being, but believing in the God of the Bible is a spiritual matter. Only God can change an unbeliever's mind and heart. Sinners must be transformed by the fire of the Holy Spirit before they will come to Jesus Christ for salvation from sin. And that is really what Elijah was praying for on Mount Carmel. He prayed, verse 37, that God would turn the hearts of Israel back to God. That was the point of his proof. The fire from heaven was not just a sign of God's power. It brought spiritual regeneration to the people of God. And it takes fire to do that. The brilliant 17th century French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote down an account of his own conversion. A servant discovered it after Pascal's death concealed in the lining of his coat. Pascal wrote, In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday, 23rd November, Feast of St. Clement, from about half past ten in the evening until about half past twelve, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, end quote. God himself did for Pascal what the philosophers and scholars were unable to do. He proved himself by giving him the fire of the Holy Spirit. And our job is to do what Elijah did. Our job is to identify the idols of our culture and to confront people with the choice between the living and true God and every false God. And then we pray. Because only the fire of the Holy Spirit can regenerate a sinner's mind and heart. It is ours to speak and to pray, but God's to convert. The Chinese Christian, Watchman Nee gives a fascinating account of the way that God proves himself in his book, Sit, Walk, Stand. 
Sometime before the outbreak of World War II, Watchman Nee led an evangelistic mission to an island off the south coast of China. Six of the evangelists were veteran missionaries, but they brought with them also young brother Wu. After days of vigorous preaching without any apparent success, Wu was so frustrated that he asked, Why is it that none of you will believe? The people answered, We have a God, one God, Ta Wang, and he has never failed us. How do you know that you can trust him? asked Wu. And so the people explained, We have held his festival procession every January for 286 years. The chosen day is revealed by divination beforehand, and every year without fail his day is a perfect one without rain or cloud. And when is the procession this year? asked Wu. It is fixed for January 11 at 8 in the morning. Then, announced Wu, perhaps recklessly, I promise you that it will certainly rain on the 11th. They cried out, that is enough, no more preaching. If there is rain on the 11th, then your God is God. Then Wu went to tell the other missionaries what he had done. You see, he had laid down a challenge like the challenge Elijah gave to Israel. You call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, or in this case, rain. He is God. Now, Wu's challenge may have been impetuous. It may have been a mistake. It may have made the other evangelists a little nervous. It was too late to do anything about it now. And so just as in Elijah's day, the news spread throughout the land, what would the Christians do? They did not doubt that Ta Wong was capable of providing fair weather, either through demonic influence or through the ability of the local fishermen to predict the weather. It had not rained on the festival day for nearly three centuries. And yet they began to pray, trusting that the God of Elijah was with them. They began to pray, not desperately, but confidently resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in his power over sin and death. This is how Watchman Nee described the events of January 11. I was awakened by the direct rays of the sun through the single window of our attic. This isn't rain, I said. It was already past seven o'clock. I got up, knelt down, and prayed, Lord, please send the rain. I walked downstairs before God in silence. We sat down to breakfast, eight of us together, including our host, all very quiet. There was no cloud in the sky. But we knew God was committed. As we bowed to say grace before the food, I said, I think the time is up. Rain must come now. We can bring it to the Lord's remembrance. Even before the amen, at the end of the prayer, the evangelists heard a few drops of rain pitter-patter on the roof. As they ate their rice, the drops became a steady shower. As they had seconds, they asked God for a heavier downpour, and the rain came down in buckets. By the time they had finished breakfast, the streets were flooded, and the bottom three steps of the house were covered with water. Later, the missionaries heard what had happened in the village. As the rain began, some of the younger men began to say, There is God. 
There is no more Ta Wang. He is kept in by the rain. But Ta Wang was a portable idol. So the older men carried him out on a litter and began their festival procession. As soon as they brought their god outside, the downpour increased. And the men who were bearing the litter slipped and fell, and Ta Wang tumbled from his chair and broke his jaw and his left arm. But he could still be repaired. And so they patched him together and brought him outside again until the rain came down so hard that they could not see and the mud grew so thick that they could not walk. God proved himself, you see. He defeated Tawang as easily as he defeated Baal. And if God has not yet proved himself to you, if you have not yet experienced the fire of the Holy Spirit of the God of Elijah in your soul, that is something to hope and to pray for. It is something to pray for because God can grant his own proof to you. And if God has proved himself to you, then surely you have done what the people of Israel did next. After the proof came the prostration. Prostration means falling down flat on your face, like when you are taking cover from gunfire or when you have been knocked over by a bus. Verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This was real worship, not the worship of shouting and babbling, not the worship of slashing and bloodletting, but the worship of total prostration before the awesomeness of God. Truly, this was worship in spirit and in truth. It was worship in spirit because the posture of prostration demonstrates absolute reverence in the presence of Almighty God. When the Lord reveals himself in the fire on the mountain, the only appropriate response is to fall flat on your face. And it was also worship in truth, because the words coming from their mouths were absolutely true. At the beginning of this confrontation between Baal and the Lord God, the people of Israel did not know what to say. Back in verse 21, when they were wavering between two opinions, we heard the silence of their doubt. Now they have found their tongues. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Their worship is no longer man-centered like Baal worship. They are totally absorbed in the godness of God. It must have been wonderful to be there. It must have been wonderful to be there. Don't you wish that you could have seen it? Don't you wish you could have been a part of it? Don't you wish that you could have laid down in the dust with the Israelites shouting, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, over and over again until your voice grew hoarse. The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. We should have such worship. We can have such worship. If there is not overmuch passion in our worship, it is not because we do not have dancing and shouting. It is not because we do not have swords and spears. It is not because we do not have frenzy and blood. 
it is because we do not have a due sense of the weightiness, of the holiness, of the majesty of Almighty God. We do not need to see the fire on the mountain to have the godness of God in our worship. The writer Annie Dillard has written about the sense of awe, even danger that we ought to experience when we come to this place and worship the Lord God. She writes, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. We have lost a sense of the weightiness of the majesty of God, not only in our worship, but in our whole lives. The problem does not lie with God. It lies with us. We are too much like the prophets of Baal. We mistake the external forms of worship for the reality of the presence of Almighty God. And we are too much like the people of Israel, wavering between two opinions. We step one foot into the Lord's house on a Sunday morning, but we have one foot wandering out in the streets of the city at the same time. If we want to recapture a sense of the awesomeness of God, we need to do what the people of Israel did after they got up and dusted themselves off. They did not remain prostrate, for Elijah compelled them to put an end to their wavering. He commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. If they were to stop wavering, they needed to put Baal worship to death once and for all. And the Lord has not placed into our hands the sword. Our weapons are spiritual weapons, not physical, because our warfare is spiritual. But we must put our own sins to death. And we do not know how to do that very well. We are not ruthless with our sins. That is why we waver between two opinions and why we do not have a proper appreciation of the weightiness of God in our worship. So do not waver between two opinions any longer. Take the false gods hiding in your heart and put them to death, as it were, at the Kishon River. For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with. And then prostrate yourself before the Lord God in every area of life. Prostrate yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ in your work and in your play, and in your family, and in your relationships, over and over again, so that everything you do and say and think declares the Lord 
He is God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the weightiness of your holiness and majesty, for the way that you are always present when we worship together. And we ask, Father, that you would show us the sin in our lives so that we might put it to death, so that we might come into your presence unhindered in our prostration before you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>